From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Well, thanks for inviting me into your home. Long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Hello to uh, all of you listening in on our flagship station here in Toronto, the Liberty Village neighborhood of Toronto, Zoomer Radio. And uh, those of you listening in on one of our affiliate stations, the podcast, of course, at Stitcher Radio, iTunes, TuneIn.com, and TalkZone.com. Those of you watching the live stream on YouTube and those of you who take the show with you on your mobile device with the Conspiracy Show and the Zoomer Radio apps, both terrific, both free downloads, wherever and however you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes and I thank thee for your fine company. Victor Vigiani, the executive director of Zeland Communications and the Zeland News Network is here in studio and will be joined along by uh, author Preston Dennett. Uh, shortly to discuss alien encounters in just a few moments. Uh, please take uh, some time. Get on up to the website, strangeplanet.ca. That's a landing page for my various projects, radio and television. There's a radio page for this show, of course, The Conspiracy Show. Check it out. Register as a member by clicking on the blue Members button on the left-hand side. It's fast, it's easy, it's free. And once you're a member... You gain access to member-only areas like the audio archives and the book club. Uh, And uh, there's also a TV section, of course, for my television program, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett, which uh, continues to air on Vision TV. We did four seasons. TheConspiracyShow.com. TheConspiracyShow.com. Click on the uh, store in the menu bar. And uh, check out all the Conspiracy Show merchandise, phone cases and T-shirts and hoodies and mugs and, um, uh, what else, sweatshirts. TheConspiracyShow.com. All right. Uh, most UFO books are kind of rehashes of old cases. Uh, but Inside UFOs is, um, is fresh. It presents research with ten all-new Never before, never before heard original cases of extensive contact. A wide variety of ETs are presented, including various types of greys, praying mantis types, ETs, humanoids, and Nordics. The witnesses are normal, everyday people who suddenly find themselves in very unusual situations. The unique and unusual nature of the cases in this book are a surprise even to those well-versed in the UFO literature. And we are going to examine several of these never-before-heard cases of alien contact over the course of this hour of The Conspiracy Show. Uh, Victor Vigiani is a good friend, long-time contributor to this program. He's one of Canada's hardest-working ufologists and one of the leading voices for UFO ET disclosure in this country. He's the executive director of Zeland News Network, an independent news service dedicated to the compilation, distribution, and analysis of news and intelligence related to the national security and geopolitical implications of the disclosure of the extraterrestrial presence now engaging the human race. The website is zlandcommunications.blogspot.ca. Victor, thanks for making the trip in for Mr. and Mrs. Saga. How are you? Just fine, thank you. Once again, it's a great pleasure to be here. One of the things I'm appreciating about uh, Preston Dennett, the author of Inside UFOs, True Accounts of Contact with Extraterrestrials, is the original ground 
uh, that he covers while researching this topic. And I'm, we were mentioning this off, off air before, um, how, you know, we talk about alien contact and mm-hmm. abductions and, and UFO sightings to the point where it almost becomes mundane and we lose sight of the fact that for someone who's never heard about this stuff before, I mean, this is mind-blowing stuff. Yeah, there there seems to be sort of a, a lessening of sensitivity. The more you talk about it, it becomes ho-hum. But in, in looking at some of the work by Preston, my goodness, uh, 18 books. Uh, I mean, I've been around this whole phenomenon for going on uh, 40 years, and I have yet to see such a large compendium of information that's, as you said earlier, it's fresh. I mean, this stuff is really, really hot. Well, I mean, I'm, uh, compared to you, I am a novice in this field. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but a lot of the stuff that Preston talks about in previous books, and I want to talk about some of the other stuff that he's done, and I think you're going to cover off the, 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 uh, the new, the new material. But I was not familiar with things like alien breathing pools. Were you familiar with that? No. I've okay. not heard about that at all, no. Or, or alien zoos, uh, or, um, well, I mean, we, we've heard, you know, rumors about, um, you know, the murder of, of witnesses, but I haven't seen it in print to the extent that Preston delves into he it. He seems to have captured it in a way that's totally unique. All right, let's get Preston Dennett in here. He began investigating UFOs and the paranormal in 1986, 30 years ago, when he discovered his family, friends, and co-workers were having dramatic, unexplained encounters. Since then... He's interviewed hundreds of witnesses and investigated a wide variety of paranormal phenomena. He, is a, he was a field investigator for the Mutual UFO Network, a ghost hunter, a paranormal researcher, and the author of 18 books, I think it's 19 now, and more than 100 articles on UFOs and the paranormal. His articles have appeared in numerous magazines, including Fate, Atlantis Rising, MUFON UFO Journal, Nexus, Paranormal Magazine, UFO Magazine, Mysteries Magazine, Ufologist, and others. He's written pretty close, as I say, to 20 books on UFOs, strange creatures, and things paranormal. And his latest is Inside UFOs, True Accounts of Contact with Extraterrestrials. Preston Dennett, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Wonderful. Thank you. And it's great to have you with us. This is your first time on the show and there's a lot of ground to cover because you've covered a lot of territory over your 30 years and almost 20 books. So I want to ask you about something that you've written about previously that just jumped out at me immediately. And um, and we will get to uh, the, the, you know the new material, and I'm, I'm going to let uh, my my colleague Victor Vigiani uh, address some of those cases. But one of the hidden dangers of being a UFO investigator, you write, is becoming investigated by the UFOs themselves. You say it's a clear-cut case of the hunter becoming the hunted. So after 30 years researching and writing about extraterrestrials, uh, Preston, have you become the hunted? I have, and uh, really kind of shocked me. I have to tell you, you know, growing up, never saw UFOs, uh, never saw anything, actually, until I started investigating it. And almost immediately after I started getting into this field, I began having some really profound experiences on some really actually close-up sightings. I remember the first one was about a year after I got started investigating. I was driving home from my sister-in-law, my brother's house. I'd been talking about UFOs intensely with them. And this ball of light drops down out of the sky. This was around, let me see, late July, probably around 1990. And uh, this thing, I think... 
I'm thinking, God, you know, it's got to be a bird. What is this? It, but it's not a bird. It looks like a golf ball. And it's, it's not a golf ball either. It's just this glowing ball of light. Very small. Comes right up to my windshield. You know, I'm driving pretty slowly. It's a uh, residential road. And this ball of light just kind of scoots back and forth right in front of my windshield, I'm going to say about two or three times, and zips forward and goes straight up into the sky and disappears. And that's the first sighting. Yeah, it, and they it, came pretty regularly after that. And you believe it's a result of the fact that you now are actively involved in, in researching, studying this phenomena, that you now are being observed? Yeah, you know, at some point I came to that conclusion, because I'm that first time, it, it, I felt like it targeted me. just came out of the sky from nowhere and came right up to my car. And uh, that seemed really unusual to me, especially because I was so interested in this stuff. And uh, other sightings following that, you know, I sort of had the same impression. One time I was right in the middle of an intense investigation with this lady who was having really amazing encounters, very extensive. Um, people... All around her were seeing UFOs. Wherever she moved, there'd be a wave of sightings. Her friends had seen UFOs, her neighbors, many of her family members. And uh, I was closely associating with her. And it wasn't long before I started having sightings uh, once with her and uh, once while I was actually transcribing an interview about her. And uh, it was very strange because... I had this very strong impression to run onto the roof of the condo where I lived at the time. And this is not something I've ever done. Uh, I had no reason to do it other than this very strong compulsion. Ran to the top of the condo, looked out, and I'm going to say about mm, 100 feet away, 50 feet up, this orange light appeared. And I got a really strong, and I know how this sounds, but this is what happened. I got a strong, I'll call it telepathic impression I said, you know, we are, when, I'll call her Wendy, we are Wendy's ETs. This is us. We're real. You know, as, as I was transcribing her interview, I was, I mean, it was just so amazing. I was getting skeptical. So I think that's why they came and contacted me. But it was, it was straight on in my face. And this orange light just kind of started darting back and forth as if to say, you know, look, this is not a conventional plane. We're truly here. And disappeared. It was a very brief sighting, but interactive, if you know what I mean. And right, it right. Really it convinced me that, oh my God, you know, these guys are aware of what I'm doing. Well, that's, I guess, an occupational therapy, or is it? Let me work at my colleague Victor Vigiani in here, because what you're listening to this, Victor, is, in your experience, is this fairly common among UFO researchers that once they immerse themselves in this, then they become observed? Well, I would say yes, uh, and, and I say that through my own personal experience, uh, knowing people who have gone into uh, this whole field of research. But I think there's a there's a tipping point at, at, at in, in somewhere along the line where there, there's sort of an intuitive um, whatever it happens to be when certain individuals delve into this issue, uh, this, the level of intuition that, that seems to be reflected among the researchers or the researcher. Uh, 
for some reason, whoever these beings are, they tap into that intuition and they manifest themselves in different ways. And I've heard this very, very strongly from several researchers, both in Australia and here in Canada and, and, and several in the United States. So it's not, it's not uncommon for this to, to happen. Uh, I'm not sure exactly why. Do, do, do whoever these beings are, do they just they pick up on this intuition, this, this level of consciousness that people have? But uh, there's just no rational way to really explain what some of the researchers go through once they begin delving into this. And it's sort of a... The, the, a cosmic experience that they go through and, and it doesn't happen to everybody either it, I mean I've been doing this for, for 40 years and I think I've had maybe I think one sighting that seemed to be legitimate but that's about it, it, it it's not struck me in, in the forehead in any way that perhaps Preston has been alright we will come back with Preston Dennett Victor Vigiani as we discuss Inside UFOs True Accounts of Contact with Extraterrestrials right here on The Conspiracy Show stay with us Peering into the shadows, where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. And we are back with Preston Dennett. And uh, his latest is Inside UFOs, True Accounts of Contact with Extraterrestrials. This is fresh. Uh, these are never-before-heard accounts of um, uh, contact with extraterrestrials. Ten brand new cases, and I'm going to throw it over to my colleague, Victor Vigiani. Yeah, I, I think that uh, there's a couple of um, things that you've listed. Uh, the teacher stopping on a road and, you know, huge sphere, sphere drops down and, uh, you know, the teacher stops teaching. Uh, all kinds of things are happening uh, in, in the multiple numbers of things you're describing, Preston. But the one that I really want to focus on for a moment has two aspects to it. It's the, the naval electronics specialist has a complex UFO encounter aboard a Navy ship and is taught by the ETs about alternative energy sources. That's a two-pronged thing in terms of not only just the, um, the the energy factor, the alternative energy, but also the national security implications of, you know, an electronics specialist on a, a Navy ship um, being, uh, you know, encountering a, a UFO. So it's a two-pronged thing. Could you tell us more about that uh, that particular incident? Yeah, it's an amazing case. It occurred around 1960 aboard the USS Valley Forge. Jim Kubelbeck was a Navy electronics specialist. And uh, one evening, this is around uh, June, July, August, he was out on the deck and observed these very large, bright orange lights um, some distance from the ship. And I was really impressed by them because he could not identify them. He was trained in identifying aircraft, and these were nothing like he had ever seen before. There was a lot of strange characteristics about them. They were totally silent. They were very, very large. They were glowing and pulsating, and that could only be seen if you looked directly at them. They were absolutely invisible in your peripheral vision, which he found very strange. Uh, He actually ran down to his uh, cabin there, below deck, to get some binoculars that he had bought earlier at Shoreleaf and convinced a bunch of his fellow officers to go up on deck to also observe this. He had two pairs of binoculars, and about a dozen of these guys observed this, these objects for quite some period of time. They're not sure how long. Um, he went down below deck several times and alerted the bridge about these objects, these lights, and the bridge first denied it and later said, you know, we're not going to talk right now. We're too damn busy about all, with all this. So it was a very strange and kind of lengthy sighting. 
what was really interesting was it, it had aspects to it that were uh, very unusual. The next day, he was went on, on deck to see if these lights would return. They didn't, but as he's uh, below deck, he's checking out his binoculars, and some of the men he, he had been with that previous evening watching these UFOs uh, started joking with him about his binoculars, and it turned out they did not remember seeing these UFOs at all. The event had been completely wiped from their memory. That what amounts to missing time. I mean, they just did not remember seeing this very amazing sighting. Uh, this really kind of upset Kubelbeck, uh, Jim Kubelbeck, and uh, he finally found one or two of the guys who was up there who did remember seeing these UFOs, but it was very strange because, yeah, most of them did not remember. And what's really interesting is Jim Kubelbeck remembered more than just a sighting. He remembered actually being contacted by what he believes are the pilots of these objects. So did they share information with him about this alternative energy? That's really interesting. Yeah, they sure did. You know, it's not uncommon when someone's taken on board a UFO that they're, well, examined, of course, but after that, perhaps given messages or taken to see the engine room. That's actually pretty common. It's happened in a number of cases. People are taken to see the engine room of the craft and actually told how it works. And that's exactly what he describes. Um, he describes the people that he saw as being normal, human-looking people, but they were very, very interested in uh, his ideas about energy and uh, particularly alternative energy, um, free, magnetic free engines or, and uh, that type of thing without using fossil fuels and right. perhaps you know, solar energy and water energy. They were talking in depth about these subjects was he took, was he actually abducted do you feel that he did he report being taken and and along with the other people not remembering uh, could have been in a case of a multiple abduction or just was he uh, was he sort of went through that experience um, you know he's not sure he kind oh. of remembered this as a dream but it was unlike any dream he ever had that's common yeah he does not feel like he had missing time but i'm wondering because you know as these ufo's disappeared the ship actually turned away from them and went directly away. I and mean, they were clearly aware on the bridge of these objects. And uh, I believe that, yes, they were trying to make contact with these guys to sort of give them a message about mm -hmm. alternative energy. Preston, I'm Definitely. curious as to the circumstances uh, that this story was told to you. Uh, this happened in 1960. I mean, I don't need to tell you guys that there are there are a lot of... A lot of UFO researchers and writers uh, toiling in this vineyard. And for a, a remarkable story like that to go untold or unpublished for so long, why you, why now? Um, well, he was actually an elderly man when he contacted me, and he kind of wanted to get this story out. He felt it was really important and uh, had kept it secret from long, for a very long time, um, including from his family. Uh, just... Not that he was, you know, nervous about uh, ridicule or anything like that. It was just kind of a private experience for him. And uh, afterwards, he actually ended up building this sort of a perpetual motion device based on what he had learned from these guys and uh, just using kind of magnetics and a bicycle wheel and other stuff he picked up from the local hardware store. And I uh, told his whole family about the encounter, and they encouraged him to do this. So 
that's kind of what inspired him. And uh, this thing, he said, would turn for days and days. Was he ever told not to report this or not to talk about it? No. Um, he didn't have anything like that. Uh, no, not either way, you know, talk about this or don't talk about this. Mm -hmm. It's just something that, you know, he kept privately, which is, you know, something that a lot of witnesses do. They don't like to talk about this sort of thing. I, I want to uh, dial back uh, to a previous uh, article or, or work. And, uh, th again, this is new territory for me. Uh, you mentioned in this case of someone being taken on board, not necessarily an abduction, but the idea of people who have been taken on board some sort of a craft where they have seen a collection of animals, and you refer to it as an alien zoo. I would love to hear more about that, Preston. Right, right. That's from one of my earlier books, not from here. And uh, it's something, you know, I, I know some people are taken on board. It's pretty much a standard experience for the most part. They're examined. Perhaps genetic material is taken. Uh, they're given messages. Perhaps they're shown the engine room or something like this. But in a small handful of cases, but now I'm, I'm going to say there's at least a dozen like this, um, they don't see the engine room. They see what amounts to an alien zoo or something very similar. Uh, one very interesting case is what that of one of John Mack's clients. And uh, she says that she was taken on board a UFO, and what she saw was in one of these rooms was an entire pine forest. She was about the size of a gymnasium. was absolutely alive. She could smell the trees. She could, you know, birds and other animals were there in the forest. And she felt it was like some kind of nature preserve. And uh, there's a number of cases like this. Betty Andreessen, she also reports a very similar incident in which she was taken on board a UFO and saw all these various creatures in glass-type enclosures. Uh, and uh, I found more of them. There's a real estate agent from Oregon, uh, Katerina. She wrote a book about her encounters, and she was taken on board a UFO and saw all kinds of animals, some from Earth, and some definitely not. She said there was a very large gorilla-type being, which uh, definitely was not from, from around here, and another cat-like being. And, uh, yeah, there's a whole bunch of cases like this. There was another family. Uh, this is also in Oregon. And they were taken on board a UFO and described that they had a virtual Noah's Ark of creatures, uh, a lot of them from our planet, but a lot of them weren't. And they had plants as well. And I should add that there's been many, many cases where UFOs have been seen landing and taking various creatures, whether it's, you know, rabbits or cows, or there's a case down in Peru, that, that area, South America, where uh, a UFO is seen hovering over a swamp and abducting alligators, not once, but twice. So clearly, they're not only abducting humans, but plants and animals as well. That's fascinating. And, and not to be flippant here, but, I mean, uh, how would one tell the difference necessarily between an alien life form, let's say uh, uh, some sort of a, I don't know, an alien mammal uh, versus, uh, you know, a far more sophisticated, intelligent uh, entity? Uh, you know, if you're dealing with, for example, praying mantis types, I mean, how do you differentiate between that and some other creature that, as far as you know, could be, in, you know, a super intelligent being? It may look like, I don't know, the alien equivalent of an elephant, but who knows? Maybe it's 
<laughs> yeah, no, I, I see what you're saying. Um, well, you know, we can't really tell. Betty Andreessen talked about how some of the creatures she saw enclosures were definitely from our distant past, dinosaur-type beings, but as well included primitive man, or a, what you would call, you know, cavemen or a Neanderthals. This sort of thing. You may have seen the the movie. I'm not sure if you have or not. The 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 movie uh, Arrival. Have you caught that movie yet? Uh, no, I haven't. Yeah, no, I have I. Yet, yeah, it's a it stars Amy Adams and a lot of other really good good actors. Um, I saw it at the on, the on the big screen about a month and a half ago, and the, what you're, you're you're describing this large um, how can I put it uh, not oval shape almost cone shape uh, vertical craft, uh, the size of the CN Tower up here in Toronto, uh, comes down and lands in the middle, uh, or at least positions itself over the land, and Amy Adams and a crew goes into it, and they go into this smoky, large room, and there's a glass uh, screen, and behind the screen, there's this smoke, and then these really bizarre creatures, to the point that Richard's saying right now, you just don't know what these things look like, and then they slap onto the, the glass screen these... Uh, almost uh, Gaelic symbols of some kind with circles, and, and it's their language. So, I mean, how do you tell a sentient being uh, that, that may or may not look like anything you've ever seen before from just a simple animal? And this this movie, uh, it really depicted it very, very well. Wow. Um, I mean, is there... I mean, the, the whole UFO field now has given rise to exopolitics, mm-hmm. discussing the political implications, but is there not an exobiology as well? There certainly is, oh, for sure, because different kinds of creatures have been seen by by people who have had contact, abductees. They've seen different types of, uh, which look like, you know, quasi-non-sentient beings, but they are, in fact, uh, animal-like. Uh, many people have described those kinds of things, yes. Victor, why don't you uh, introduce another one of these cases? Yeah, there's another one. Uh, there's I, I guess it's it's the one that really interests me because it has a uh, it relates to a to a chi- to a child and I've had some experience with uh, with with younger folks um, in elementary school age who have had experiences and the one of a young child experiences an encounter with a Nordic uh, ET uh, that, that marks a lifelong series of events. I mean that to me is uh, not only does he experience it but they they keep on continuing in his lifetime. So what was that all about? Yeah, that's definitely a pattern that uh, occurs within the with people who've had you know extensive contact. In particular, uh, they'll have contact as a child, and it continues throughout their life, and often it's generational. And that's definitely true in his case. Uh, he, when he was around 11 years old, his mom sent him out to mail a letter. This was in St. Louis, Missouri, and he actually lived on a pretty busy street, lots of cars. And as he's walking home, just a couple of blocks from home, uh, it was 9 o'clock, all the cars disappear. Uh, should be impossible. This is a very busy street. And this object drops down out of the sky right over his head, hovering right over the building he's next to. And he's looking up. He can see it's metallic. It's round. It's got a grid work type of stuff on the bottom of it. And it, suddenly it sends down this brilliant beam of light. And that's, I mean, the next thing he remembers He's walking home, and an hour or two have passed. He has had mm-hmm. missing time, and his mom is furious. She's like, where have you been for the last hour? You know, I've been looking for you. And uh, he did not know what to tell her. He wasn't quite sure what had happened, but he felt 
absolutely transformed by this experience. He said it was as if a veil had been lifted from his mind. He felt much more clear-headed. He felt smarter, like he could think faster and had kind of been enlightened in some way. And what's really interesting about this case is he spontaneously remembered what happened during this missing time, at least some of it. Uh, he recalled after the light hit him, he found himself aboard this craft, and there were these two, maybe three men. They looked pretty much identical. They had very carefully cut hair. Preston, I apologize. I'm going to have to cut in here. We're uh, heading into a break. We'll pick up on this case, an encounter with the Nordics. Right here on The Conspiracy Show, Preston Dennett, Inside UFOs, Victor Vigiani, Zealand News Network. Stay with us. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Next week on the program, uh, John Rappaport, a brilliant uh, investigative journalist who worked the, uh, the medical beat for many years. And uh, he'll be with us in the first hour, second hour, our dear friend, uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, paranormal investigator, author of nearly 60 books. And uh, Preston Dennett, likewise very prolific. He's um, approaching 20 books. His latest, Inside UFOs, True Accounts of Contact with Extraterrestrials, 10 never before uh, published uh, close encounters with ETs. And uh, in studio... Uh, from Zealand News Network, Victor Vigiani. Victor, you were asking Preston about this encounter yeah. a young man had with a Nordic uh, that would um, would go on for years. Uh, yeah. Now, the Nordics, uh, they're generally encounters with Nordics are generally a positive experience. Are they generally not? benevolent, generally speaking. Yes, I've never, in my experience with this, um, the Nordic beings seem to be. Most like us in terms of just their physicality. They're taller, but they're you know, a little different looking. But uh, I've never heard of a situation with the people, the experiences that I've uh, had experience with, that have had some sort of negative experience. Uh, they've all been very, very positive, very amicable and sharing and very sensitive and intuitive. And I'm just wondering, uh, on the basis of what uh, you know, Preston has been describing, this, this man, as he grew older, did these uh, experiences, A, continue with the Nordics, and did these, these experiences continue to be sort of benevolent and sort of uh, learning experiences for him? Oh, yeah, they absolutely did. Uh, what's very interesting is uh, I mean, he didn't remember everything they said, but he remembered that they had very long, deep philosophical conversations uh, and uh, left him completely changed. His grades had been very poor before this incident. Following them, he rose to the top of the class and pretty much stayed there throughout school. But uh, that was the last time he actually saw the Nordics. Following that, his contacts involved greys. Mm, totally but, uh, different. They were, yeah. they were still largely friendly. Um, he had a lot of missing time type incidents. He had a number of incidents involving screen memories where he thought he saw initially deer or something like this and then would meditate on it and realize no, these were the greys he had one incident in which the entire family was watching this UFO right outside their farmhouse, they had moved out of the city at this point 
and uh, he runs inside to get his shotgun, which had a scope on it. He wasn't planning on shooting this UFO. He just wanted to get a closer look. <laughs> That's odd. Why would one need a scope with a shotgun? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but uh, so, I mean, that's what he did. So he runs back outside, and the UFO is still there. Pulls up the rifle with the scope, and looks through it, and the UFO is gone. Puts the gun down, and sees that his whole family is now frozen in place. You know, the, not only his family, everything around him. He can still move, but birds in the sky are not moving. His dad's holding a bucket filled with milk, and it's halfway splashed over and frozen in place. They have somehow stops time, apparently. Uh, he's running around in a panic um, and turns and sees right in the front yard this UFO has now landed and three greys are getting out and walking towards him. So they have the ability to apparently control time to some extent, and this has turned up in other cases. And, yeah, he had incident after incident like this. He had one incident where they came, took him up in, inside a UFO, and actually explained to them how they were able to transport humans uh, while moving at very, very high speeds and right angles. This was something that had been puzzling him. And apparently, they responded to his question by showing him and placed him inside this chair, which filled up with liquid. Um, a top came over the chair, and uh, this liquid sort of encased him like inside of a tank. He was actually forced to breathe this liquid. And uh, he was able to do so, and they told him flat out, this is how we are able to transport humans. The breathing pools. Yeah. yeah. Right. Have you heard about this before? Definitely. Richard? The breathing pools, yes. I, I've dealt with experiencers, Richard, who've uh, actually had almost like womb-like experiences where they'd be within some sort of tank, and it wouldn't be necessarily water. It was sort of like a, a liquid of some kind, and they would uh, breathe in this liquid, and it would take it into, the, but they wouldn't be suffocating as, as a drowning person would. So it's very, very bizarre. All right. We'll uh, step away, come back with Preston Dennett, Victor Vigiani, Inside UFOs, True Accounts of Contact. Stay with us. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. All right. We are uh, back with Preston Dennett, Victor Vigiani, for a few moments yet. And uh, previously, uh, Preston, you have written uh, about uh, the book, I believe was entitled uh, Healing UFOs, uh, where we have uh, people that have had a close encounter and they have either developed some un- uh, some unique physiological uh, ability. I'm, I, um, I met a woman once um, who claimed to have been abducted and um, afterwards she was almost impervious to pain. She actually came into the studio one time. This was, I was up the street at another radio station, and she stuck a knife in her hand and felt nothing. Now, was that as a result of the abduction? Who knows? But, uh, so you've got the, this dichotomy because you have people who are being healed by UFOs, but then you have a case in, in, uh, Inside UFOs, the new book, in which a, um, I believe is a young, uh, uh, a paper boy, uh, who has an encounter and then develops this mysterious illness, perhaps, as a result. Tell us about that. Right. This is not unheard of, certainly. Getting too close to a UFO is, might not be wise. And in this case, I think is a good example. Uh, this gentleman, I'll, I call him William Trimble. That's a pseudonym. Uh, 
he was delivering papers. He had to wake up at 4 a.m. each Sunday morning as a young boy to deliver these papers to his local uh, neighbors in his neighborhood, and uh, was doing so. It was around 4, 4.30 in the morning when he had just started, and this object comes zooming down out of the sky. At this time, he was pretty familiar with aircraft. Despite his young age, he had developed an interest in aircraft, and this was nothing he had ever seen. It had no running lights. There were no wing lights, no strobes, nothing but a big, bright, white ball of light. And he's trying to determine how close it is to him, how low down. He feels like it's pretty close. It feels like it's right above him, just maybe 50, 100 feet up and large. And he's trying to figure out what's going on here when suddenly it flashes a bright beam of light at him or he just sees this bright flash of light. And next thing he knows, he feels disoriented and it's now daytime. At least a couple of hours have passed starts delivering papers as fast as he can. Uh, people are already waiting on their doorsteps, wondering what's going on. By the time he gets home, his parents are furious, his boss is calling, and he's just exhausted. And following this incident, he had to deliver papers, you know, multiple times a week, went back to delivering papers and could not do it. He was just too weak, could not manage the strength to throw these papers the necessary distance, and couldn't even bike home by the time he was done. And it took about a week, but his he just got sicker and sicker and didn't tell his parents what happened, but got to the point where he could not get out of bed and had to be rushed off to the hospital. Still didn't say what happened. Uh, this is not unusual. A lot of people I've talked to who have had symptoms as a result of a UFO encounter, whether good or bad, don't tell the doctors for whatever reason, and he certainly didn't. And the doctors were unable to diagnose him. They ended up giving him a vitamin cocktail and sending him home for bed rest. And uh, he was sick for three, four months at least, almost the whole year. He was bedridden. He lost a lot of friends. He missed school. And uh, had, I mean, he attributes this directly to his UFO experience. And I agree with him. It sounds to me like he has had some version of a, radiation sickness. Uh, so yeah, I think he got beamed by this UFO. Uh, he did have other strange experiences in his childhood that he tracked back. And in adulthood, he continued to have some unusual experiences and eventually sought out hypnosis. He's one of two people in the book who've undergone regressive hypnosis. And uh, after having read quite a bit about UFOs, he contacted a hypnotherapist he said, you know, having read about UFOs, it's a strong possibility that your recall is going to be contaminated. Uh, he agreed to do it any anyway, and under hypnosis, recalled a fairly typical abduction. He was taken aboard this craft. Uh, he was examined. What was very interesting is he didn't see gray type ETs. He said that actually what he saw was a very tall figure, uh, and it had a yellowish kind of tint to its skin but otherwise was very similar to what he had read, having, you know, large, dark eyes and a large, bald, hairless head. And he said it was, the experience itself was so frightening that he kept passing in and out of consciousness through the whole thing. And the last thing he remembers is he's being placed down next to his bike. They're putting his hands back on the handlebars, 
putting him in the exact position he was when he first saw this thing. And they disappear, and this UFO darts off, and the experience is over. Wow. Are there are many cases, Victor, that you're aware of that where a witness uh, or someone who's had a close encounter has had it sort of suffered deleterious health effects, I, like the Falcon Lake case in northern like, Manitoba, yeah. where someone had, had radiation yeah. burns. Mm-hmm. But other cases? Yeah, there's there was one incident in uh, in Texas. I don't recall. I think it was back in the, the late 80s, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Preston could probably corroborate it. But uh, two ladies were uh, confronted by, they were driving their car along a, a road in Texas, and this massive UFO um, just lit in front of them. The car stopped. They got out to look at it, and um, it, they were they experienced something. They felt heat on their body. Got back in the car. They, the lady went to touch the car handle to open the door. Uh, both of them got in the car. They, you know, they did eventually get in. The, the UFO disappeared, but both of the ladies uh, suffered radiation uh, poisoning, and one of them um, uh, developed cancer from it. So there's really no way of knowing of you know what the implications are of coming up to close uh, contact with one of these craft. Uh, I want to ask you about um, again something that you have talked about in previous books, and this is something I have never read or heard from any other UFO writer researcher. I could be wrong, but and that is the odor. Um, given off by UFOs, and sometimes it ha- the, the odor, as we're talking about health, sometimes the odor has an effect on people. Tell me about this. Yeah, there hasn't been a whole lot of research into this, and uh, this is one of the chapters in my book, Not From Here. Uh, I surveyed a good, gosh, about 50 cases, and found that the odors fall into two main categories, uh, one being kind of a chemical or metallic odor, um, often described as ozone, or the second category would be organic odors. And I have to tell you, when people are taken on board a UFO, generally speaking, these odors are not pleasant. A number of people have described the smells as being similar to a locker room or very dirty and kind of muggy and smelly. Uh, So I found that kind of interesting. Uh, A number of people have described it smelling like uh, beans and franks or hot dogs i heard that three or four times which i found fascinating uh what i find really interesting about these ufo odors is one they point towards these objects being metallic machines often electrical machines will leave an ozone like odor and that's very common in these cases and conversely the organic odors reported points towards the likelihood that we're dealing with biological beings here. A number of people have actually smelled the ETs themselves and described a slight kind of uh, odor that was, in a couple of cases, three or four, they described the ETs as smelling kind of like woodsy was the actual term used in at least two or three cases. Uh, Willie Strievers said that they smelled kind of like cinnamon or wet cardboard. But uh, you definitely get a sort of a subtle yeah. organic yeah. odor from these 
ETs. The, the psychological effect of the, these odors are, are really, um, I mean, even as a child, most of us can remember walking into homes or when grandma's cooking and, and remembering that. Uh, the, the, that it's the most that, provocative. The oral factory it, is most provocative of all oh, senses, for sure. Yeah. Let me ask you, Preston, um, you, you've gone through, uh, I mean, I'm just sort of looking at the list of things that you've, um, you've elucidated here. Um, and for every, you know, one experience that you've, um, that you've outlined and talked to these people about, um, there's got to be a hundred others. How many, how many people do you think are out there right now? Uh, and I've been, you know, I've been through this a lot over the past 35 or 40 years. In your estimation, how many people on the planet right now are experiencing this kind of contact? And what, what kind of consistency is happening? Because let's face it, uh, you could talk about the geopolitical implications of all of this and, you know, sightings and everything, but these ETs are making contact with millions of our people. What's your estimation of, of how the extraterrestrial phenomenon and the ETs themselves are making contact uh, w- with our species. Yeah, well, I think any estimations of how common this experience is is vastly underestimated. When I first got involved in this field, I heard a quote from J. Allen Hynek, uh, the father of modern ufology. He worked on Project Blue Book and uh, ended up kind of defecting from the Air Force and writing his own books about UFOs. And uh, there's a quote from him saying that one in 40 people have had an onboard experience. Mm-hmm. I heard that, and I thought, no, there's just no way I know 40 people, and I don't, I'm sure that I don't know anyone who's been on board a UFO. Well, that was in the beginning of my research. It turned out I was wrong. <laughs> I did not have to ask 40 people, and I found about five people within my circle of family, friends, and coworkers who were having this experience. So that sort of alerted me that this is probably more common than most people realize. I surveyed a lot of the major researchers, like you know Jacques Vallée, mm-hmm. Bud Hopkins, and whoever I could get my hands on, and uh, they kind of agreed. I ended up writing an article for the MUFON Journal, titling it "One in Forty People," and you know, yeah. outlining this theory that there's sort of an invisible epidemic. And it was about a year later the Roper poll came out and right. found one in fifty. So yeah, I do think it's very common, and I always ask people when I interview them. Did you report this to anyone? The right. police, you know, the Air Force, you know, a UFO reporting center? One out of a hundred say no. Yeah. And these UFO reporting centers, by the way, are receiving a lot of reports. In California alone, they receive, you know, daily reports, uh, you know, five, ten a day. So in my opinion, there's someone being abducted at any given time from our planet. Hundreds of people are having sightings right now. Uh, yeah, I think it's a very active and much more active than people realize. Preston, uh, sadly, we are out of time. I'm going to have to have you back um, because, as I say, you cover a lot of ground that nobody else t- touches and uh, a great find and a great guest. And thank you for hanging out with us. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks again. Preston Dennett. And uh, very quickly, let me give you all the, uh, the website. You can click on his name at strangeplanet.ca. That'll take you to his website. But it's Preston Dennett, two N's, two T's in Dennett. Preston, P-R-E-S-T-O-N, Dennett.weebly.com. And there's a books page there. You can check out all his work right there. Victor Vigiani, as always, thank you. Great to be here. Ryan, Albert, Ian, thank you all. Back next week with a brand new show. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What I say in the dark, speak in the light, what you hear in a whisper. Proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.